family does. <laughs> well, that's about the high point this morning, so we'll uh, <laughs> just stop right there. Hey, we are so glad that you're here with us. If, if you're visiting with us, if it's your first time here, if you've been here since day one or you're anywhere in between, if you're joining us online, we're so grateful that you're here. My, my name is Kurt, and, and I'm excited uh, as we, we dive into this series. We are just a, a group of people here at Crossroads who are trying to figure out day by day what it's like to follow Jesus and trying to do it a little bit better today than we did the day before and, and learn a little bit more. And, and so we started this series to kind of help with this. We started this series last week called So Many Questions. And Brad kicked us off in this series by asking and answering the question, how can I know that God really exists? And as he kind of got into that, he talked a little bit about uh, what I'm going to talk about today too. And so we're going to take this a step further and ask the next question in this series, which is, does science contradict faith? This is kind of one of the big questions that gets asked a lot and kind of one of the big topics that gets kicked around and talked about a lot is that, that, that you have to pick a side here. Like you're all on one side or the other. You're all about scientific study and scientific research and evidence that can prove what you believe. And because of that, there's no room for faith because faith, after all, is defined as something that has evidence you can't see. Or the things you simply hope for and wish for. That's what Hebrews chapter 11 kind of says. So somebody were to say that, that I'm all about science, there's no room for faith. Or maybe you're on the other side, you're all about scripture and faith, and there's really no room for science for you because that goes against what your faith might be. If, if you can prove it, we don't need faith for it, etc. It's kind of this tug of war that I feel like the more we go about our world, society tries to push us one side or the other. It'd be like if you came to my house and, and I said, do you want, uh, want a snack? We have salty snacks or sweet snacks. You get to pick. And you're like, well, I like chocolate-covered pretzels. You know, I kind of like all of it. Uh, this this tug-of-war exists. And this tug-of-war kind of finds itself buried with men like Richard Dawkins. If you don't know who Richard Dawkins is, he's one of the most uh, notable atheists in the world today. In fact, he's kind of the leader of what's called the New Atheism Movement. And uh, he, he wrote a book several years ago called The God Delusion. And in his book, he, he just basically tries to blast religion as a whole out the window. And he, he really picks on Christianity, but he picks on all the religions too. And, and in his book, he makes the point that you cannot be a highly intelligent or, or high-level thinker and have faith in something you can't prove. That, that's his whole premise behind his book is that faith is unreasonable, it's illogical, that it doesn't, doesn't work. And to kind of support his point, he conducted a survey of, a, of scientists that belong to the National Academy of Sciences, this prestigious American scientific group, and his study found that only 7% of men, who belong, and men and women who belong to this group, 7% claim to believe in, in God who communicates with humanity on a personal level. On the flip side of that, you've got a man like Alistair McGrath. I mentioned him a couple of weeks ago. He's a noted apologist. He is a, uh, a theologian, holds a Ph.D. from Oxford University in molecular biophysics, and he holds two other doctorate degrees from Oxford, which is one of the most elite universities in the entire world. He still teaches there today, and, and he claims that many of his colleagues at Oxford who are certifiable geniuses have belief in God. He says that those who don't believe in God 
often their, their reason for not believing has nothing to do with science whatsoever. It's something about their personal backstory that led them to their, their belief. Uh, you can take this a step further and you can look at the history of the Nobel Prize and the men and women who have won the Nobel Prize in an area of science, over 70% of them claim to have some sort of belief in God. Rebecca McLaughlin wrote a book a couple of years ago called Confronting Christianity where it answers some hard questions. And, and in her book, she makes the claim, who, she's a, another PhD from Oxford who currently lives in Boston and teaches at, at Ivy League schools and has colleagues at MIT, the leading scientific research uh, school in the country today. And she estimates that about a third of those MIT science professors believe in God, and about a third don't, and about a third just don't really know. And she said, when you look at it, though, it's more of a causation or a correlation, because she said those who don't believe in God typically fall into one of two demographics, white men and Asian men. And she said, those are the two least likely demographics in our world today to not believe in God. So is it because of science, or is it because of their upbringing, because of their demographic? It's just this whole idea that they want to push to say that, that you can't be a high-level, intelligent thinker and believe that faith is illogical, that it's unreasonable. But if we go clear back to Jesus, and we look at a word Jesus used to describe us, to describe those who follow him, we kind of see where that's not necessarily true. See, Jesus called those men who followed him his disciples. He calls us as the church his disciples, and he tells us, the church, to go into the world and make Disciples. That's the Great Commission. And the word disciple comes from the Greek word mathetes. What's fascinating about this word mathetes is this is the Greek translation of the Aramaic word, which Aramaic was the language they spoke in Israel in Jesus' time. It's the Greek translation of the Aramaic word that described a pupil or an apprentice, somebody who studied from a master, studied from an instructor. And so to look at this, we, we realize that to be a disciple means to be a student, to be a learner, to be somebody who investigates and, and, and researches. In fact, you look at this word, mathetes, and it's from another root word that gets us one of our favorite subjects in school. You can probably guess which one, right? It, this is where we get our, our word math, mathematics. And mathematics, that, that root word literally translates the mental effort needed to think something through. Dr. Francis Collins is a physician and a geneticist. He's the leader of the Human Genome Project that, that really tries to break down human life at its absolute base level. And, and as he was studying genetics... His study through all of genetics and his study through all of this led him to believe in and eventually to follow God. He said this in one of his writings, I believe that God did intend in giving us intelligence to give us the opportunity to investigate and appreciate the wonders of his creation. And I love this last part. He is not threatened by our scientific adventures. In other words, Francis Collins is saying here, that the very nature of faith in Jesus not only invites us, but in some ways in, it, it welcomes us and, and maybe even encourages us to investigate our faith, to dive into our faith. In other words, don't just go off of what you can or can't see. Look for the things that you can't and dive deep into them. This is supported in Scripture. 
One of the gospel writers actually took this very same approach. The gospel writer Luke opens his letter uh, this way. Luke chapter 1 verse 3 says, Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write a careful account for you. Luke is perhaps the most detailed of the four gospels. In particular, it's detailed in areas that weren't familiar to the Jewish readers who might have picked that up back in the first century. But Luke had to carefully investigate because Luke didn't see what Jesus did. Luke wasn't a follower of Jesus. Luke was a follower of the Apostle Paul several years later. So he had to research because he wasn't there to watch Jesus in action. It'd be like if I wanted to write a biography on Abraham Lincoln. I wasn't there. I didn't see those things happen. I would have to go research and study in order to write this book about Abraham Lincoln. That's what Luke does for us here. He learned in order to spread the gospel. That's what he did. See, I think science and scripture can work in much the same way. I do not think science and scripture have to be mutually exclusive things here. Too, too many people want to say that they are. I don't, I don't agree with that. And in fact, I'd say that if they're used with proper harmony and respect with one another, science and scripture can actually complement each other quite well. And what we're going to do today is to kind of look at one, one area in particular. And I, I've got to put a huge disclaimer out because I, I talked with a few of you in the last few days. This could be a semester-long lecture. Okay, like we could go for a long time on this topic, and, and I really wish I had the time to dive into so many aspects of this. But I want to look at one area that kind of overlaps everything else. We're going to look at creation. And, and I, I kind of joked this week because uh, last week Brad was talking about the, the question of how do we know God exists, and, and he kind of started getting into creation. And it was funny because he, he said... Now, Kurt's going to talk about this next week, so I'm not going to go any further. And then he talked for about 15 minutes on that topic. <laughs> so he shortened my sermon. You're only getting an hour and a half today, so you're good, right? We'll take an intermission here in a little bit for, for, for a snack. So. But we're going to look at creation because creation leads us into so much of this divide. There, there are many people who are scientific thinkers who, who, who follow men like Dr. Stephen Hawking, one of the, the more brilliant minds in American history, when he said science can explain the universe without the need for a creator. There are many people who follow that. Dr. Hawking's field was theoretical physics. His whole goal was to try and find the, 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 the creation of the universe, how it came to be. And he would study things like string theory and some of these other ideas that are so more complex than I can wrap my own head around. But I, I look at his quote here, that science can explain you know, creation without the need for a creator. And, and I just, I don't quite get it because for me, I marvel at creation. I love, being in, I love being out in nature. I love seeing different types of creation and different types of nature. And the more I'm out there, it helps me to understand something, that there are some questions science simply cannot answer. But there are also some questions that Scripture doesn't answer. And for that, we kind of have to put the two together. To illustrate my point, let's take, uh, let's take this cake here. Now, I got up really early this morning and made this cake. Uh, and... Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not much. It's just a little red velvet cake that the music team is already dying to get into. Um, but let's say I took this cake, and I were to put this cake on a table like this, and I were to surround the table with scientists, and I were to ask, the, ask them this question. I were to say, how was this cake made? Now, each one of these scientists is going to look at this, and the chemist is going to look at this and talk about 
the ingredients and the right mixture of, of, of flour and eggs and water and, and how they got just specific, precise ingredients. Because I don't know much about baking, but I know you have to stick to the ingredients and the recipe on baking. But you take those and you expose them to a certain amount of heat for a certain amount of time, and voila, there's your cake. The physicist is going to look at this from a like molecular level and talk about the particles that go into this and, and how they compressed in just the right way to produce this cake. And on and on and on around the table, each one of these scientists, if they're one of the leading scientists in their field, are going to give you an answer. And guess what? They're all going to be right. They're going to tell you how this cake was made. But let's suppose I change the question. And I ask instead, why was this cake made? Now suddenly, each one of these scientists around the table, they don't have an answer. Now they can give me a guess. And it may be a very, very well-educated, well-informed, well-thought-out guess, but ultimately, it's a guess. They're not going to know. The, the, the chemist, the, the, the physicist, the biologist, all of them can't give me an answer. To get the answer to why was this cake made, we have to ask the baker. Now, the, the scientist may say, well, maybe it was made for a wedding, Maybe it was made for a birthday or for dessert, or maybe just some dude needed a sermon prop for his illustration, you know. But we have to ask the baker if we want a precise answer on why this cake was made. You've heard me say this, and I'm going to continue to say this, but I'm never content simply knowing the what. I like to know the how and the why. Uh, for me, that, that just helps me, it, it helps me peel back the onion more to understand more about the reasoning behind things. And when it comes to creation, the how and the why typically lead us to one of two areas, depending, again, which side of the argument you're on, science versus faith. Creation typically is, is talked about in one of two areas, the idea of natural selection or intelligent design. Natural selection is a tenet of the theory of evolution that came about by uh, Charles Darwin in the mid-1800s. And the whole idea on it is the, the theory of survival of the fittest, the strongest survive, the strong prey on the weak. Maybe you've, you've probably heard and read about this. It's where we get a lot of our ideas that we have about evolution these days. Intelligent design tells us there was a creator who had a purpose and meaning behind the creation that was, was, was brought forth. And as we look at it, these two arguments, specifically the idea of natural selection. It's really the idea that that's how and why we are who we are today. That's how things have evolved over the course of time to lead us to where we are today as humans, as the rest of creation, as nature, etc. A recent study on the idea of natural selection came to the conclusion that humans and chimpanzees share 99.4% of our DNA structure. That's, that's fascinating to me, it, partly because I'm, just, I'm a numbers guy. I love stats. Uh, I, I love numbers. I joked earlier about math. I love math. Uh, but the, the lead researcher on this study was a man named Jared Diamond. And after his study, he wrote a book on this called The Third Chimpanzee. And his purpose in the book was there are two species of chimps in the world, but his theory is there's actually three, and the third is humans, that we're a more evolved, slightly more complex version of chimpanzees. In his book, he writes this, we humans appear to be slightly remodeled chimpanzees. 
And while Jared Diamond is, I'm sure, no doubt a brilliant mind and a a brilliant student, a brilliant professor and researcher, I, I disagree with him on this. I think that we are much more than simply remodeled chimpanzees. I mean, just just stop and think about this for a second here. There's some parents down here with new babies in the crowd. Would you have a chimp come and babysit for you? Okay, would you have a chimp perform a surgical operation for you? Like, would you elect a chimpanzee to Congress? (laughs) Don't do it. Don't do it. I told you that was as good as it was going to get earlier. So. <laughs> See, here's the thing about this. We may be 99.6% or 0.4% the same as a chimpanzee. I, I don't know. I really don't know. But here's what I do know. Is that humanity and human value in particular cannot be measured in percentages. That's where the missing link is here when you start looking at the idea of natural selection. Another study was done by a man named Anthony Flew. He was a very noted vocal atheist, and he was strongly opposed to any idea that intelligent design had anything to do with creation whatsoever. And so he was part of a study that took six chimpanzees, and they put each one of them in a room with a typewriter, and their idea was to leave them in there for a month. And these were chimps they had kind of taught to recognize words. They could point to words when commanded And the thought was these chimpanzees, after one month, will be able to type out a poem. They'll be able to type out something like a poem that would not be quite on the level, but, you know, look like a a child's version of a Shakespearean poem or something. So there they went. They put the monkeys in there, clicking away on the keys one at a time for a month straight. And after after 30 days of, of these chimps pounding away at the keyboard, what they discovered was fascinating. These six chimps in one month produced 50 pages of typed work, but not one actual word. And what's amazing about this is there are some one-letter words in the English language, and there are some two-letter words in the English language, and these six chimps in 30 days each couldn't produce one single word, much less a coherent sentence. Now, they did the math on this, the, the odds of one of those chimps typing out one word was 1 in 27,000. Now imagine those odds of not only typing out one word, but typing out enough words to form a coherent sentence. And then imagine those odds if they were to create something as elegant as a Shakespearean sonnet. This experiment was done multiple times. And the same results were produced every single time. And after it was over, Anthony flew. The, the leader behind this, this noted vocal, vote, a devoted atheist, after watching all of these experiments, he came to believe that the universe, which is infinitely more complex than a poem, there's no chance it could have been created by random chance. In fact, he said this, the sheer improbability that such an intricate design as we have in the universe is the product of mindless evolution is insurmountable. The universe must have purpose and design behind it. Science can't account for purpose and design. Science can tell us a lot of things, a lot of good things, but it can't account for purpose and design. And science can't account for humanity when it comes to creation. But thankfully for us, the Bible can. Genesis chapter 1 can. 
Genesis chapter 1, we get God's account of creation, how he's speaking the world into existence. And my favorite part of all of this is at the end of chapter 1, in verse 26, when it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. I look at this because God made all of his creation, but of all of it, he chose us to bear his image, to be his representation on earth, both, I think both physically and also emotionally, to, to, to value what he values, to love what he loves, to care for what he cares for. And, and here's the problem with this. Too often, we as humans lean into what science says about us to describe us. When we want to ask what's the meaning of life, we, we tend to look into science or philosophy sometimes to try and get our answers. But here's the unfortunate thing. If that's all we're going to look into, then we have to be honest with ourselves and we have to look at the idea that science can't tell us why we are. It can simply tell us what we are. And what we are, if we're being very, very honest is what the great Dr. Greg House from one of my favorite all-time TV shows, House, what he used to say. If you didn't know the show, House was a very arrogant, very nihilistic type of mind. You know, he was driven by the puzzle. That was it. He wanted to solve the case. He was based off of Sherlock Holmes. He wanted to solve the case. He didn't care about the patient. He just wanted to solve the case. He wanted to, to, to not be fooled. But in one episode, House tells one of his patients, you're a mortal person. You're just a bag of cells and waste with an expiration date. Your life has no meaning. That's what science ultimately says about us. Now, I got I to give you guys a heads up about something I'm about to say. Because this could be a trigger warning for some of you. And I don't mean to dredge up trauma with anything. But I just want you to know that I'm going to say something in a minute to kind of prove this point. Science tells us that we are 99.4% chimpanzee. And if, that's, if that is entirely true, and, and I don't know if that's a true stat or not. You know, I, I read once that 74% of stats are made up on the spot. I don't know. So <laughs> I don't know if this true, this stat is true. But let's just assume for a moment that it is. If you have studied chimpanzees or apes for any length of time, you know one thing is very clear very fast. They are a completely male-dominated species. The males will completely dominate every aspect of the females' lives, and they will assault them nonstop, physically, sexually, in every way, shape, and form. They dominate it. And the researchers who study this do nothing to intervene. Why? Because that's nature. That's just how they are. Again, survival of the fittest. But we as human beings have decided that's not appropriate behavior. Why? Because we place value on each other's lives. We place value in this. And we take those behaviors and say those aren't acceptable in our society. And they do happen. And if they've happened to you, I am so, so sorry that those have happened. But we place value there. Science can't explain that. Science ha has no basis for right versus wrong. Science can't define evil. And, and I want to kind of tell you, I'm going to dive into this topic a whole lot more in two weeks. Don't miss that. Because we're going to ask the big question in two weeks. How could a loving God allow pain and suffering in the world? And I can just tell you right now, that is going to be a hard sermon to listen to. And I can be very honest and say it's going to be a hard sermon for me to preach. But we're going to do it because that's the number one stumbling block for a lot of people in their faith. And if you want to see me emotional, <laughs> you can be here for that one. Because I can promise you it's going to happen. 
So we're going to answer that question in a couple of weeks. When it comes to the idea of asking the question, who are we and why are we, we shouldn't lean into science. Science has, has incredible, amazing value in our lives. In fact, I would say there are so many of you who are sitting here today because of science, because a scientific discovery has saved your life. A scientific training has, has trained doctors and engineers to, to create a world for us and to, to put things in our world that make our lives much better than they might have been a century ago or two centuries ago or, or however long it was. If, if you drove a car here this morning or we have lights on in the building and, and we have a, a speaker system so you can hear me, that's all the, 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 the result and product of, of scientific discovery. But science cannot account for everything because science can't account for the value that we place on human life. So if we're going to ask the question, who are we and why do we exist? We can't look to science to answer that. As Christians, as people of faith, or maybe, maybe you're here and you're skeptical today, we look instead to what God says about us. We look at what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 138 when he says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. I, I read this verse and I think about what's going on in our country right now with that big debate that's going on and what the Supreme Court is, is, is mulling over. And you get on social media and you see the, the vitriol being spit both directions here. And I can just tell you, I read verses like this and I can't help but think of the intentionality that went into every child in the womb. And the precious life that goes into every life that's in the womb. And how everyone that was conceived, every one of us, was intentional. And there was creation and intelligent purpose behind all of that. And then I, uh, to kind of bolster that even more, I read what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. This word workmanship is the more literal translation, but I love what this one here says in the New Living when it says, we are his masterpiece. You are his perfect creation. You're made in his image. And what I like too is, is I read that word and the Greek word that's used here to, to be defined as, as workmanship or, or masterpiece is used in other ancient literature to describe poetry. It's used to describe this just beautiful creation that somebody intelligently and intentionally designed. In other words, when I read these, I come to the conclusion that God created you on purpose for a purpose. That's where I put these two together. That's where I put science and where I put faith. And it goes beyond just human beings. I think it applies to all of creation as well. Not just to us, but all of creation. I've been so blessed in my, my time to get to see so many amazing things. I love to travel. My wife loves to travel. And we've gotten to see some just beautiful, amazing creation that's out there. Uh, like, like this was our view the last five years. We had to drive like an hour to get there, but that's the Pacific on the Oregon coast. And those huge rocks that jut out off of, off of the, the coast there. And, and I mean, I'd never even seen the Pacific until I was in my mid-30s, and then I lived right next to it for five years. And think, you know, I'm standing here and think, man, it's just thousands and thousands of miles until there's something on the other side of this water. 
It's just, I feel so small looking at this vast creation. Or maybe this, my, my wife prefers this view. She'd prefer the, the sugar white sands and the, the, the emerald clear waters of the Gulf Coast. Or, or maybe it's getting up to something other than sea level and going up high. I love being up in Colorado in the mountains. Or this is maybe my favorite place on earth, Crater Lake in Oregon. This, this volcano that collapsed in on itself and then filled up over a few centuries. This water is the purest water on earth. 1,900 feet deep, and if light would travel that far, you could see to the bottom. It's so clear. And we see it, that perfect blue color, fed by the snow. It has no natural inlet. It's just snowfall and rain that fills it. Or, or maybe, maybe like you all living here in the Midwest, it's just a simple Kansas sunset. Over the prairie, the magnificent colors that light up the sky as it does. But it's not just about the creation I can see. It's about the functionality that comes with it. Uh, I, I traveled down here quite a bit when we lived in Oregon to, to the redwoods of Northern California. One of my favorite places to go. I, just, I go in there just to get lost. These trees are 300 feet tall, and there's so many of them. They're so thick. You can reach out in some places and touch two of them with your arms. They're those trees that if they happen to fall over and you stand beside it, you look like this little speck compared to the width of the tree. But what's fascinating about redwoods is that they're the tallest trees on earth, 300 feet tall, and yet their root systems only go a few feet into the ground. But they intertwine together, and they grow together so that if one tree falls, they all have to fall. Or, or maybe it's the humpback whale, this majestic animal out in the ocean that can sing a song, and, and the song is just the right pitch that it can travel through the water hundreds of miles to reach other whales in its pod. And I, I, I study this, and, and I didn't make these discoveries. I mean, people who have much higher levels of intelligence than I do and have studied for far longer than I do have made all these discoveries, but I read these that they have researched and they have discovered that they have used scientific process to figure out, and I am blown away. Not that this was all random chance, but that we have a creator who intelligently and intentionally designed every single one of these things. And the more I see and the more I study, the more I research, it just drives me to realize that our world came to be not through random chance, but by intelligent, intentional creation. And the good news with this is the more we go is that more and more high-level thinkers are starting to agree. And maybe they're not fully jumping on board and following God just yet, but they're starting to believe there's more to creation than just what they can prove through their research. Like Dr. Alan Sandage was a, one of the leading astronomers of the 20th century. He, he researched and researched, and he finally asked himself the question, how is it that inanimate matter can organize itself to contemplate itself? In other words, how can something randomly come to be and evolve from a chimpanzee and then ask the question, how did I evolve from a chimpanzee? How, how can that happen? That's what he asks. And he says the odds of, of everything today being the, the complete result of random chance, it's the same odds as if a tornado blew through a junkyard and assembled a fully functional 747 jet that could fly nonstop around the world. Or maybe it's Dr. William Lane Craig, who was a theologian, who dove into the idea of a Big Bang theory. 
And, and he, he came up with this. In the last 35 years, scientists have been dis, uh, stunned to discover the Big Bang was not just some chaotic primordial event, but rather a highly ordered event that required an enormous amount of information. In fact, he says, from the very moment of its inception, the universe had to be fine-tuned to an incomprehensible precision for the existence of life like ourselves. And that points in a very compelling way toward the existence of intelligent design. In other words, what's he saying? You can't have a big bang without someone there to give the big bang. You can't have nothing and then suddenly have something. And as he says, the, the specificity of this, science has shown us that our earth at 93 million miles away from the sun, if it were a few miles closer or a few miles further, life would not be sustainable on earth. It's in a very precise, specific location. The more I study, the more I learn, and the more I explore and I investigate, I am just blown away by creation. And that God chose us to bear his image in all of that. And the more I dive into this, the more I, I relate to what David said in Psalm chapter 8 when he wrote, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. David understood then what we do now, that the wonders of creation point more and more to God. And that the whole purpose behind creation was God. For us, as we dive into this, it just requires us to approach it with honesty and humility, not with a preconceived, closed-minded agenda that we take into the study. But we do it open-hearted and open-handed, being led to it. Science can tell us how things happen. Science can point to how maybe some of the creation came to be. The Bible in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in particular, they're not about how creation happened. They do sell us how, but that's not the purpose behind Genesis 1 and 2. It's not about the how. It's about why creation happened. It's about the why. God had a plan, and he still has a plan, and he incorporates and includes us in that. Creation, I, I believe this, God put everything into motion so that he could have us to commune with, so that he could have us to dwell with. He could have us to live with. Does science contradict faith? Sure it does if you want it to. Does faith contradict science? Sure it does if you want it to. But I just, I don't think those are mutually exclusive schools of thinking. I don't agree with Richard Dawkins that you can't be a highly intelligent person or any level of intelligence and not have faith. In fact, I, I lean more into what C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity when he said, if you're thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you, you are embarking on something which is going to take the whole of you Brains and all. But fortunately, he says it works the other way around. Anyone who is honestly trying to be a Christian will soon find his intelligence being sharpened. Maybe it's as simple as just studying and reading more of Scripture so that you can know more about Jesus. Maybe that's studying the things around you so you can learn more about the world around you. I love Scripture, and I am so blessed that as a career, I get to study it, learn it, and then turn around and teach it. I'm so blessed by that. I love getting to, to dive deeper into the theological truths of the Bible, but I love science. I love math. I love having a problem that I can work my way through and figure out, and that I can, can point to and definitively say, this is, this is the right answer right here. 
And as I raise my kids, I'm raising them to ask questions. I'm raising them to, to challenge themselves to learn, to know, to grow beyond just what they already know. Because I want them to be rounded and, and to understand this. But folks, as I approach all of this with, with honesty and humility, same way I approach all these questions we're going to ask in this series, my prayer is always this, that God never let my head outweigh my heart unless they're both pointing towards you. Science can teach us so many things. But folks, we need to remember that we put God first in all that we do. We put him first and we allow him to help guide us and lead us along discovery. We won't be led astray. We won't be tricked or pulled into a wrong direction by somebody who might have an agenda they might bring to us. And for that, I'm grateful. For that, I love looking at science and faith together. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you give us minds that are inquisitive, that you give us minds to challenge, that you, you teach us, Lord, and that you allow us to be taught, that you, you lead us in ways to be taught. Father, I pray right now, if anybody is asking these skeptical questions, God, you would remind them. You would remind them of the intentionality that went into everything, the purpose that can't be explained. God, that we are so much more than statistics. We are so much more, God, than just part of the scientific process, but God, we are yours. We are yours, created on purpose and for a purpose. God, we're so grateful that you sent your son to us so that we could, we could emulate him. He put on his humility, as it says, to become one of us to reach us. And we're grateful for that. And we pray this today in your name. Amen. We're going to step into a time of communion. And um, as we do this, I just want to be reminded of our Savior who went to the cross for you, to die for you on the cross. A Savior who bore the stripes and bore the pain. And you parents, if, if you're involved in the parent dedication, you can go ahead and step on out here as we, as we do this in just a moment. But as we take this time, I want to just encourage you and challenge you to focus on God to remember him and remember the sacrifice that he made for you. And I pray that we would bless God in this time, that he would anoint this time be special for you. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your son and for the sacrifice he made on the cross. God, we pray right now that you would be with every one of us. God, that we would give this time to you. We would remember you in all that we do. We pray this in your name. Amen.